0: Hi, welcome to another episode of ASMP Experts and Masters. I'm Luke Copping, the Chair of the National Board of Directors of the American Society of Media Photographers. Today I'm excited to bring you this conversation between our Executive Director, Tom Kennedy, and noted picture editor, Karen Malarkey. Karen has an extensive and illustrious career in the photography business, serving as an editor at magazines like Rolling Stone, Newsweek, and Sports Illustrated. You can learn more about the American Society of Media Photographers by visiting asmp.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast series, ASMP Experts and Masters, in-depth conversations about the art and business of professional photography. I'm your host, Tom Kennedy, Executive Director of ASMP, and today it is my really great pleasure to have on as a guest, Karen Malarkey, one of the most influential and respected photo editors of my generation. Karen has been a great friend and a colleague for many years and a learned so much from her over the years, and I'm really super excited to have her on today. We've got a lot to talk about. Karen's background is probably well known to a lot of you, but as uh, she's been the most influential photo director at magazines like Rolling Stone, New York, Newsweek, and Sports Illustrated, but that's just the tip of the iceberg of what she's done with visual communication. She's also been an editor on some of the most seminal book projects of the last quarter century as well as doing documentary film work in high definition television she's worked in new media doing digital startups and she's also uh, curated a number of photo exhibitions and you know high end museum uh, exhibits around the world so it's you know there's an awful lot to unpack and talk about so Karen welcome to the program
1: thank you Tom I'm glad to be here
0: And I'd like to start, Karen, by you taking me back. I know you got started at Life Magazine in the 1960s, and I'm sure, you know, most of our audience would understand that that was an extremely different time and place, and it was a very challenging environment, say the least, for a young woman. So take us back there and talk to us a little bit about how you got started, what some of the things, experiences were like as you were getting going in this world of photojournalism
1: happily um the fact of the matter is I graduated college in 1964 that makes me 76 this month and when I got out of college and I went to get a job I was asked three questions how many words a minute do you type how fast is your dictation and do you make good coffee honey and the reality was I could only make coffee so I had to go to a crash secretarial course for six weeks. And in New York in those days, there were only two. And you had to, you know, be all dressed up in a dress and high heels and the proper foundation garments and carry a purse and wear uh, white gloves. And one of them required wearing a hat. And I looked like Helen hats, So I went to the other one. But after six weeks, I had some really great skills, because I'm highly competitive. But even so, I flunked every job interview because I was terrified. And finally, I got a job, uh, and I in a crummy place in New York uh, doing you know ridiculous work, but I perfected my craft. And eventually, a friend of mine who worked at Time Inc said to me, and I'd grown up with her, "You know you should be here." So I went there and I got a job as a secretary. And I started in the in Fortune and other places. And then finally, I came to the attention of the vice president of um, personnel, who was the first African-American big executive at Time Inc. And he sent me down to the picture collection because he was doing a project about Martin Luther King. And I never had been there. And he sent me down to find pictures. And I was overcome because this was half the 28th floor, the picture collection. And I gathered pictures and I brought them up to him. And he was pleased with what I got. And then he had already received notice that they needed a second secretary to the director of photography of Life magazine. And he knew my skills were good. So he sent me there. The first secretary was an English woman, very imposing. And she kept every photographer at bay. And I'm talking Eugene Smith. Everybody was terrified of her. But she could not, she had no secretarial skills. So I meet with Mr. Richard. Richard O. Pollard was the director of photography. And I meet with him after many interviews with other people. And um, we hit it off. And so eventually that's how I started. And he would have me write all his correspondence. And in the morning, I'd come in, and there'd be just brown paper there with the name of a person and the points he wanted to make. And my job was to write the letters. And then because I could take dictation, when he cut deals with Hal Buell, who was the head of AP in those days, and other people, he'd have me sit in the back like a court stenographer. And I'd write everything down. And whenever he made a deal with a photographer, I'd sit in the back and write everything down. And then I'd type up my notes. And um, sometimes, you know, he'd made a deal and he'd say to me afterwards, what do you think of that? How much do you think that money was good? And I said to him, I thought you could get more by this time. And the way I uh, I got moving along in all of this was one day, you know, he said to me, are you happy? And I was Not very outspoken like I am now. And out of my mouth came, I could be happier. I couldn't believe I said it. And big, imposing guy. And he said to me, really doing what? And I said, whatever you take the time to teach me. And that was the turning point. Because then he took me to the end of the hall where this room was filled with yellow bags that were each filled with transparencies. And everything had a set number, which is too complicated to get into. But this was a room where the that kept the reject, reject, reject transparencies. The film had already been through the picture editors, then down to the picture collection. And then it went up here. And mostly it was held there for when photographers came in on home leave, like Larry Burroughs and people like that. They could go through their work. So he gave me a set number and he put me in that room. Nothing was nothing was organized. They were just thrown in there like, uh, you know, your fibromyalgia and molly closet. And he gave me the set number and he said, oh, by the way, there are 10 takes. So that means there are at least 10 bags. Get them all and bring them back. I found them. I brought them back. And at the light table outside his office, he said, okay, uh, go through this. Listen to me. This is the rocks, right? Mm-mm. But inside these, inside each of these boxes, among these rocks, there are pearls. And we'll see if you have the eye because the pearls should jump out and bite you and pull them by take. And so that's what I did. I stack them up. Then he come, came out and said, okay, I want you to make a picture story. And remember this, every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end and i asked to read the captions and he said no
0: yes yeah
1: we don't you don't know, read you the going? caption no don't need to read the captions right. because you're going to do it based on what the pictures make you feel
0: right right
1: and that's how it started and i did it well and then he had me do it once more and then he began to give me to photographers as little present And meanwhile, I'm still doing all the typing. I'm still doing all that clerical stuff. And so, but he would call up Gordon Parks and say, I I want you to talk to the kid or she's going to come down. So I I came down and Gordon would give me a set of contact sheets. Of course, he'd already edited his film, but this was a blank set. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And he'd have me go through and mark what I liked, what I thought was good. And then he'd sit with me and compare what I had selected with what he did. And if there was a difference, he would show me why he had selected his picture. And he'd make me look at the small detail over in the left corner or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And he said to me, you see, it's the little things in a photograph that, that make them compelling. And if a photograph doesn't make you laugh or cry or question or angry or something, It isn't right. It doesn't do it. And that's how it started. He would send me to the studio. I've had a big studio. And I might work with Fritz Goro one day, who was the science genius, right? Right. And on and on it went until finally one day he decided, as they were getting ready with the Apollo program, to give me uh, as a present to Ralph Morse, who was certainly Mr. Astronaut Photographer. And I got that gig because I could drive. And so and so I went and he gave me to Ralph. At, he said, I got a Christmas present for him. I'm giving you the kid. And down I went and I traveled with Ralph and I covered and... You know, I started with Apollo 8 and I did everything. I got the rooms, I got the cars, I separated wives from mistresses, I organized the dinners, I ran the, I learned how to run the teletype machine. Uh, Tommy Delestro from AP taught me to read NICs, everything. And so eventually by Apollo 11, I ran the entire coverage. Wow. And I shot, I even shot at the VIP site but I never wanted, it wasn't shooting that interested me. It was finding that moment in a film, finding that moment that, you know, see my theory on still photography is why I think it's always going to be better is that the image doesn't go away. Whereas in a film or anything else you're off to the, you know, it's moving so fast. Right. 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 The, The reason that, Stills are still so powerful. Is you, you have to stop. It stays a, there.
0: Talk a little bit about what the relationship was like, as you because you've worked with so many great photographers over the years. What were you? I mean, obviously, you're looking at their work and you're trying to select the, the gems that they produce. And I know from my own experience at National Geographic that part of the art of what you're doing is. Also, you're trying to work with the photographers to really shape how they produce and use their talents. So what was the relation you know, what what have what have you tried to do in terms of building those kinds of relationships that allow them to trust you to know that you've got their back in terms of trying to draw out the best work?
1: Well, I, I fortunately had a great mentor in Dick Pollard. And I because I got to sit in the room and do all that stuff all those things. I watched how he worked with photographers and some of them, he was gentle with them and some of them, he was tough with them. And he seemed to intuitively know when to show the carrot and when to apply the stick. And that was, that was something I observed firsthand. And I began to uh, develop that same Gift and when I, you know, like when I did the Apollo Eleven, I I don't know, I had twelve or fifteen photographers, each one had you know huge egos, and and it was a question of how to uh, handle each one. But then when it came down to the deadline, and I would say to them, "Look, here's the deal: <laughs> if I don't have the film by such and such, you know, you I'm going to turn you in." And I mean, I and and you had to be firm. At a certain point, you you help. You mold, you might say from looking at a take, I think we're close, but we're not quite there.
0: Karen, hold on just for a second. I've got to change um, something and we'll pick it up. Don't worry, this will be right okay. out. Okay, I'm back. Um,
1: so let me just uh, so how do I motivate people? When I worked with Annie Leibovitz in the beginning, you know, we were printing on toilet paper, right? This was not, and so. It, and we didn't run a lot of color this is goes back to seventy four, seventy five, right and so we weren't running a lot of color so we mostly shot black and white but I knew that I needed color for either a cover or a lead shot and the way we did it is I would look at the film when it came in because she'd be she'd ship it and I'd process it have it processed there and I'd be looking at the contact sheets and I would say to her gee it looks to me like you know the lead singer is, you know, the girlfriend has left the lead singer and she's with the drummer, right? Something like that, right? Something that sort of I got out of her pictures, okay? And she would say, and she always called me Choo Choo. Choo you're right. And I said, okay, great. I think it's time to put color in the camera and shoot that opener and let's go make a cover. Because that, you know, so those are... It, again, goes back to what Gordon taught me. You know, it's finding those feelings and emotions in pictures. You know, when I first went there, she was already in South Africa photographing Arnold Schwarzenegger in his very last Mr. Olympia event, okay? Mm -hmm. And I – she'd already left, and I had started. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, God, I hope she shoots him like a piece of meat, (laughs) each part of his body you know aside, right, 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 and, right. but I don't know her well enough to call her up in South Africa and tell her that so I'll just wait and hope I'm surprised and she came back and that's exactly what she had done and I just was so enthusiastic when we finally met and I said to her oh my god I'm so excited this is exactly what I was hoping you would do and that started well right we started well I mean, we only had one minor altercation, but that, you know, that was the first time that happened and it never happened again. And it was, it was something, you know, that was about technical stuff.
0: And, did, and Go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, that's okay. How did,
0: how did she um, respond to your aesthetic sensibilities? Because I know she had started as a black and white photographer, but, yeah. um, you know.
1: Well, you know, she started doing black and white, you know, she wanted to be a painter. I think this is an important thing to remember, sort of like Bresson wanted to be a painter. So she basically was taking art classes at the the Art Institute in San Francisco. And part of that was having to take a photography course. And it really knocked her out. And then she went off to a kibbutz for a while and photographed there in Israel. And then she came back and she was really into the photography thing. And her, her, her visual aesthetic is beyond belief brilliant. And a lot of what she does is influenced by paintings. Okay, But she did not have technical skills. Now, I came from Life Magazine where people had amazing technical skills. And nobody ever shot Triax at 1600 unless they were in a closet or, a, or in a, a coal mine with just a headlamp on And she always shot at 1,600 in the beginning. And so, you know, we had a conversation about that. And initially, you know, she wanted me to know that was her style. And I told her I thought it was because she didn't know how to shoot it normal. And that was, you know, a little jarring. But I was right. And, you know, she knew my background and that made her anxious about me i thought she was brilliant so i was anxious about her right
0: right. and
1: it was really for me the first kind of true one-on-one relationship with a photographer
0: you know did that excite you to have that ability yeah it it, it was
1: scary it was scary and Mm -hmm. it you know it's part of my theory that um fear is a great motivator (laughs) I often practice that with photographers, but it's true. And so, you know, we had that little moment and my response to her, because I could see she really wanted to go off, was, you know, don't, don't, let's not talk about it. Let me just make you an offer. I, I can help make your technical skills better. I'll hire assistance for you. You can eat them. I don't care. There are a dozen. I said. And, and so that's what I'm going to help you with. And you know what you're going to help me with? You're going to help me see better. And I think that's a perfectly symbiotic relationship.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a great trade. Um, And
1: I said, so, you know, think about it. And, you know, you don't have to say anything now, but let me know what you think. And she walked out, and then a few minutes later, she came back, and she said, I think that's a good deal. I said, me too. And we shook hands, and that was it. And, you know, that was it. She, you know, one time said to me, I don't know why you like this one picture so much that I had on the wall, which was a shot of her taking – Uh, down in Plains, Georgia uh, at Jimmy Carter's church. And I could she was scooting down and I could see her in the bumper of the car. And she said to me, "I, I don't know why you like that picture. Why do you always have that picture up? And I said, because I actually get to see you working, which makes me very happy. And years later, after she gave me so much grief about that, I went to a huge show she had and I walked in and the first photograph you saw, huge, was that very picture. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, yeah. So I waited and I walked over to her and I just looked at her and she knew what was coming. And I looked at her and I said, my, 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 what a wonderful photograph to see when you walk off the door. Oh, the elevator. I said, where where have I seen that before? <laughs> <laughs> she laughed. I laughed. So, you know, you, you learn this kind of stuff, trial and error. But it was a great opportunity for me to learn how to talk to a very gifted artist who was, could be very difficult and demanding. And how to do that and not lose your own self was a really great lesson, which I, over the years, have been able to apply and perfect. Okay, so I give Annie much credit for helping get get me, teach me, though she may not have known it at the time, how to um, deal with somebody in both a kind and firm fashion.
0: That's great. And, you know, thinking about that period and kind of the relationship that you had, and you know, I remember the how groundbreaking and uh, seminal also it was to have Richard Avedon's work, Uh, you know, the portraits of America and the people in power. Um, What was that like? Well, interesting.
1: I, I can't take no credit for that assignment. Actually that credit goes fully to Jan. And that was his idea. Now part of that was, you know, he wanted to move to New York and he wanted to be even more famous, which is why we moved. But, Avedon, uh, you know undertook this he had his own people to help him and um and then he came to New York he came from New York to San Francisco because that's where we were at the time and uh, initially he didn't know Roger Black the art director who was hugely talented and he didn't know um you know any of the us so he had be a fighter who was brilliant art director, come and begin the layout process. But once he met Roger and all of us, he realized he was in very safe hands. And I got to spend a lot of time with him and he was, you know, I was so sure he was going to, you know, be, you know, I'm Richard Avedon and you're not, which is exactly who he was not. Right? And so we, we had a great time together and I went and took him to see Christo's fence, and we just – we always remained uh, good friends, and and he was a great teacher. See, when you have people like that, they're great teachers if you – you know, it's all about listening. (laughs) When I started with Pollard and he would send me out with photographers, he would say to me, the first rule was, speak only when spoken to. Mm Mm-hmm. And write down your questions.
0: You can learn a lot through observation and listening. That's, uh, that's certainly been my mantra over the years. And uh,
1: and, and the great photographers, yeah. And great photographers don't like to talk much when they're doing work. You know, Cartier-Bresson talks about that. You know, you just, you wait. You know, you, you don't need to say much because you don't want to be involved. You don't want to create the picture. You want your subject to create the picture and you want to be smart enough to know when to push the button.
0: One of the things that struck me, especially thinking about your transition from Rolling Stone to New York magazine is that in both cases, you were, you were doing this, you know, you were doing that kind of photojournalism that really is based on observation and, 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 close scrutiny of subjects in action but you were also creating with photographers memorable images that i would describe as sort of set piece images where the way that the celebrities wanted to portray themselves was also a factor in the overall creativity that yielded the final result can you talk a little bit about that process and how you navigated the differences between the two as photo editor well of
1: part of it you know Tom here's what I've always thought about being a good photo editor and, and a person in uh, with that I say the person who makes the assignment as well as edit the film is that um you need to be um in Yiddish I would say a yenta which means you're making a marriage and it's a short term marriage but it is a marriage nonetheless. And so you need to think about the personality, not just the technical skills and the, you know, the kind of photography they do, but also how they relate to people. And that way, if you send somebody who is just, you know, in in a way, then that personality is going to allow them to become invisible. Because when the photographer is basically the wallpaper, Really good stuff happens. So I would think about who would make so-and-so more comfortable. I mean, I'm, in doing a portrait of Brooke Astor, I sent Horst. You know, it was towards the end of his career, but he was still a great photographer, had done all these society people. And when I told Mrs. Astor I was going to send Horst, she was thrilled. And that took 90% of whatever uh, anxiety there was right out of the picture.
0: right. Right.
1: So and it was always you know uh, I would assign a hero to do uh, Kiritekanowa the very famous um, soprano at the Metropolitan the diva and I knew you know she was Maori number one which is kind of interesting and uh, so but for that shoot I I I got amazing jewelry on loan you know from Tiffany's and I got you know a long sable coat and all sorts of wonderful things that are right for a diva and she walked in and saw all that stuff and she just was in heaven and we started laughing and you know she had me try on the sable coat you know what i mean and that just broke it all down and hero was delighted and then i just disappeared and he he got everything he needed and that that is a part of it. I mean, that's why Arthur Grace matched with Robin Williams was a brilliant idea on my part, right? So I'm, I've always thought as I got to New York Magazine, it was much more portraiture and I was not working with one photographer. Right. That doesn't mean I didn't give other assignments at um, Rolling Stone. But when I got to New York Magazine, I I had a cornucopia of photographers, I could hire, I mean, I was hiring people to do architecture photography. I was hiring people to do, you know, food photography, portraits, hard news, you know, all kinds of things. So I suddenly had this ability to meet and look at and expand out and find photographers who I would never have encountered at Rolling Stone.
0: Right. And I and I I felt that same sense of excitement when I started at National Geographic and began to try to, you know, broaden and the kind of the scope of who we were working with and what they were bringing to the table as photographers. Did it change your sense of aesthetics at all having oh, the yeah. ability to expand your repertoire so to speak?
1: Absolutely, because, you know, I, 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 my theory is that every time you, like I gave Harry Benson a lot of great work on the appropriate people, you know, Leonora Helmsley or, or uh, Helen Gurley Brown and all those people, because he was an assassin and I knew it and I needed an assassin. I sent him to Donald Trump in there. <laughs> He's the perfect. And I knew he was an assassin and I knew those people would, you know, would expose themselves instantaneously. Right. And he's an old Fleet Street guy. So he he got it. So he was the perfect person. But but in doing that, you know, I used to always edit and then I would have the photographer come in. And in this room, I had this screening room, it would just be the photographer and myself in the dark. I always thought I would t- write a book called "Stories Told to Me in the Dark," <laughs> but that was when we could really talk about, it and I'd show them what I picked, and they could go over maybe what they liked. But that's how we, you know, I learned a lot about why they liked certain pictures of that they had taken, even if I didn't agree with them. Their their opinion was important because. Again, that expands your knowledge.
0: Right. And did it, I would assume, as it did for me, that getting that kind of having those kinds of intimate conversations really also enabled you to understand and cultivate that marriage that you were describing earlier so that you would really know, you know who would be right for what particular kind of assignment.
1: And then once you had that rapport, you you did not have to have a lot of conversation about what you wanted. I mean, my theory has always been, you know, at Newsweek or other places, look, I've got this space. I've only got this much space, I think, for this story. So, you know, give me something that's going to at least do that. And then please surprise me.
0: One of the things that I really thought a lot about in some of my roles and in 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 that position was how did I speak also up to the people who are in charge to help them understand and see what I was seeing in the work and in the relationships with the photographers and what they were bringing back from the field how did you how did you Learn to really talk up, if you will, to the people in power so that they would buy into the vision that you were trying to create.
1: Well, that's an acquired taste that you have to, you know, you you have enough, um, you, you gather enough experiences about what doesn't work to know what will. And also, you want to pick your fights, right? You really want to pick your fights. Because, you know, some, you don't want a Pyrrhic victory in which then they look at you every time you talk and you're just this combative person.
0: Right, right.
1: So you need to know, you know, what's that line from the song, when to hold them and when to fold them. Right. (laughs) So I would always start out, you know, in in certain places, it was much, there was much more of that probably at a place like Newsweek because there were a lot more uh, hands in the pot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: whereas at New York Magazine, I really initially only had to please Joe Armstrong, who was the editor-in-chief, and then Ed Kozner, who had worked at Newsweek. But it was a one-man band, right? Right? I didn't have to make the senior editor happy, right? right. I didn't do that. I only showed the pictures to Ed. And um, so that, you know, and I kind of, and he trusted me. And he would I'd say to me, why? And, and he would maybe go to one picture and I would say, I kind of like this one better. Here's why I think it's better. And he would 90% of the time say, okay. And sometimes he would say, no, no, I really want this one. And I'd say, okay. Right,
0: right. Because
1: it, it wasn't that important. I got into much more um, serious conversations when I was at Newsweek because. Uh, You know, by that time when I'm hired at Newsweek, I'm the first woman
0: to
1: ever hold that job in any of the news magazines. That was a total man's world. And you also had to have come through the ranks and have had, you know, been at the wires. And there were all these rules. And so when Rick Smith, who was the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, decided they were going to make a change, and the gentleman who had been there had been there a long time, and everybody who worked under him, as, you know, his deputies, blah, 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 they all assumed uh, after they got over being angry that this gentleman was being replaced, they assumed that they would have that job. And so not only did Mr. Smith go outside the magazine, he went outside and brought in a woman and I hadn't done hard news or been around it since life, you know, in the Vietnam war, where I got exposed to a lot of it and worked with some of the greatest photographers. And then I did rock and roll. Right. And, and then at New York Magazine, I was doing some new breaking news, but I was doing fashion with Anna Wintour and, you know what I mean? Portraiture and da da da. So when they initially called me, I, I, I asked the person who called me, who I'd worked with at Rolling Stone, it was his idea to call me. It, it suggests me. I, I thought they had, you know, made the wrong phone call. I said, Are you sure you know what you're doing? And, and really? And he goes, yeah. So I had a series of interviews, and the last one was with Mr. Smith. And we'd been through a number of things. And so he offered me the job. And I, I, you know, I knew what I'd be walking into because I'd done my due diligence. Uh-huh. And I basically said to him, you know, I would come, but I had a couple of preconditions and and one was that i wanted a public coronation <laughs> and by that i meant they had this thing called top of the week at newsweek and i said i want i want a reception up there and i'm going to invite not only you know i'm going to invite every time photographer all the freelance photographers my mother will come i said and i want them to see you put the crown on my head so they'll understand that i only answer to you Nobody else, no senior editor is going to tell me, and not even the assistant managing editors. If I disagree with them, I'm going to take it to you, and I only answer to you. I, this is in the last interview. Said, okay, and I said, and my other, I have another condition, which is I want to hire one photographer. I want to steal one photographer from Time Magazine as a staff photographer, and that will get everybody's attention on the f- on the photographer side in, in, who are working for, who are staff photographers at Newsweek, that'll get their attention. Trust me. And, okay. And I said, and the last one is, I'm going to go to every senior editor because they had a habit over there of just treating the photography department, like something they stepped in when we're scraping off their shoe and they were horrible, these senior editors. And they, you know, used to reduce the photo researchers to tears and they were just dreadful. And I'd done my uh, homework on that, and I said so i'm going I want you to know i'm going to go to every single senior editor if you give me this job, and I'm going to tell them how excited I am to work with them, and that if they ever have any issues with anybody who works for me, and mind you, the lab worked for me too yes, <laughs> any issue in any way, shape or form, they have only to call me or come up to my office." Tell me about it and I'll fix it. But I'm going to tell them that if they go after anybody who works for me and misbehaves with them and embarrasses them in public, I will assume they have done it to me and I will tell them that would be one of the big mistakes of their life because I'm a snake and I'll wait in the grass and I will get them and I will get them in front of you and you're going to let me do it because I'll only have to do it once. And those were my conditions. And I said to him, looking at my watch, because I had to get back for a deadline at New York, I said to him, now that's a lot to ask. I realized it's a whole lot to ask. So you're probably going to want to think about that. And I have to get back to the office anyway, because I'm closing pages. So I thank you for everything. It's been wonderful.
0: And, so and he you- said,
1: I got up to leave. And he said, why don't you sit down? I think you should sit down. Okay. We shook hands and that was it. And, in fact, when I started, many of the most important people that I needed in the department wanted to leave. I'm not going to give you names, right, but right, they right. did. Yeah, sure. And they made me know that. They told me that. Right. And I was very nervous about taking the job, for sure. And when I was deciding whether or not to really say yes, I, was, I had two people, two photographers who I knew really well, uh, come over. And they both said to me I had to do it. And one was Steve McCurry. And the other was Jim Noctway.
0: Wow, that's that's good. That's good company.
1: Yeah, but we're talking not that you know Noctway was just getting yeah, going, yeah, right? Yeah. This is you know nineteen eighty four, right? And so, and I said, but I'm terrified. You know, I haven't done news, and uh, you know, it's going to be whatever. And they and and they said, that's okay. You'll do. You can do this. You can do this because they worked with me on other situations. So I took the job and and it was a challenge and but i you know the people who wanted to leave who i knew were integral to my survival there in the photo department i i told a number of them one in particular who was really important and i knew it i said to that person listen do me a f- here before you walk out the door i'll make you a deal if you'll stick with me for 2 months you will see that your life here is so much better than it's ever been And none of the Wallendas, that's what we call the top editors will ever mess with you again. Nobody will get to you again because they'll have to go through me. And I'm going to give you a lot of freedom because I trust you. And you will find that in two months, my guess is you'll want to stay. And if you don't, I will use every key on my keychain to get you the job you want.
0: That's the kind in, of the deal that's hard to refuse.
1: Well, that's all about how it works, isn't right,
0: it? Right. You make a
1: deal. Other than you're not the you know you're not Don Corleone, which means there'll be a horse's head in your bed. Right. But you make a deal that is advantageous to the person you're talking to. Right. There has to be something good for them.
0: Right. And I mean, it's wise to see that that's the. Kind of the quid pro quo that drives yeah, so much it, of the it, creative relationship.
1: It is. And so the, everything after that was fantastic. And these kids had been so abused that when I had the first, you know, I'd come upstairs after the morning meeting on a Tuesday and I we'd all get together and I would tell them what the lineup was as of that 20 minutes. And I would ask for ideas and these kids just didn't speak. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. so I said to them, it is a big department. And I said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. There are no stupid ideas.
0: Right. Crucial. Crucial for the No process. stupid ideas.
1: Your idea may not be the idea that's the final idea, but it's going to trigger an idea in somebody else. And then that's going to trigger something else. And eventually we're all going to come up with the absolute right solution. And then when great successes happen and I go downstairs and, of course, you know, the Wallendas would congratulate me, I always said, well, I had nothing to do with it. You know, my staff really did it. And that was Kevin McVeigh's idea or that was Jimmy Colton's idea or, gee, you know, so-and-so thought of that. Isn't that fantastic? Because you're only as good as the people who work for you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. First rule of management.
1: So that very idea of how to manage a staff is the same way how to manage a photographer Mm -hmm. it's really that whole idea of how would you like to be treated
0: right that's the key right and i I, you know it's interesting karen because we both are you know of a certain generation and life experience where we saw early the 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 outcomes that we were seeking as a result of treating people that way mm-hmm. i think it's uh, i think it's something that i really wonder about these days oh. and i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that I as an think aspect it works like, yeah. you know of managing i mean i'm watching magazines really suffer these days and the people that you know are in positions that we once held I think, are really, really challenged to try to create that same kind of ethos. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I I agree. And part of that is because um, I I think it's a multiple problem. One, uh, there's no training anymore for picture editors. And people who have opinions are not uh, really welcome because, um, you know, the folks in charge now don't like to be challenged. And and much of it is controlled by what I call the bean counters. So it's all about uh, how how little money can we spend to get the most action, which is, you know, I noticed what you, you wrote something to me about, you know, people having to do, you know, 5,000, you know, they're like one man bands. Right,
0: right, right. Just... They got
1: to hit the drum and clap the cymbals and ring the bell and, you know, and tap dance and uh, sing on key
0: absolutely absolutely and i think that's to the i mean i saw that kind of ethos starting to emerge as i was working at the washington post where the pressure to for speed among other things was really getting very pronounced but it was also this idea because we were trying to combine video and still photography in interesting ways that the perception is, well, you know, you can just shoot some photos and, you know, crank out a little video on the side and we'll, we'll make a good package as a result of having both of those things done by the one person who was trying to do both. Yeah, and and they, that just yeah, never, really never works. Never well. works
1: because your attention is divided.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And you
1: can't do either one of them well.
0: Right. And I guess I've just really been, I mean, I understand economics driving a lot of this these days, but I also feel like it's so misguided but it's really difficult for me to imagine why it's so hard to see that. <laughs> so.
1: Well, because, you know, what it turns into then is everything is what we used to call spot news. Right. It's a single image. Right. And nobody is thinking in terms of the continuity of an environment. I mean, the reason I feel so fortunate to have started when I did was, number one, everybody shot film. Mm-hmm. And that meant you were not looking at the back of your camera and, um, and you were limited. <laughs> you had to think about those 36 frames. And, um, you know, unless you were in a hard news situation where things were flying, right? You, you basically, if you were doing any kind of something other than a breaking news event, your, your focus was on telling a story. And that required thought And that required not pushing the button all the time. You know, I I think I mentioned this to you. One of my favorite things on YouTube is a um, a Henri uh, Cartier-Bresson tape that was done in conjunction with ICP and Scholastic magazine in 1974. And he has a couple of great lines. And one of my favorites is, overshooting is like overeating. And that while you're busy pushing the button so fast, the picture is probably right in between.
0: Right, right. It's the power of you, concentrated observation. Yes, is so
1: imp- yeah. yeah, it's so important. And 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 guys who shot film were required to look at their mistakes. Right. Which meant that of course is the only way you learn anything. You know, you don't learn anything from your successes other than it puffs you up and you think you're brilliant. But when you have to deal, look at your mistakes, You, particularly if you're, you don't want to do it again. And, and in the old days, if you were a freelancer in shooting color, uh, that meant you had to pay for that film processing. And that wasn't cheap. Right. So if you made a mistake, you paid very close attention. So you did not do that again. And unfortunately now, since everybody can, uh, you know, shoot a thousand pictures or something on their little card, and they're looking at the back all the time, uh, you know, they and they erase their mistakes, um, They how how do you really learn anything? I mean, if I had my way, I would tape over that thing on the back. When I teach a class and somebody, they have digital, I, I cover that up. I make them cover that up. And I tell them when they turn the work in that if they've shown me stuff and there are no mistakes, I, I will know they've erased them. And then, you know, I, I'm so blunt. I say, and, But please don't let the door hit your ass as you're going out because you're gone. You're gone. I'm not interested. I'm only interested in people who want to look at what they did wrong so they can learn how to do it right and see what they might have missed and realize I need to expand my vision, right? I need to get out of a box, right? And if you and that, I think is one of the problems with digital. I realize it's fast, and I think in breaking news, I understand that it gets things rolling out fast, and everybody wants to see everything in twenty seconds. Right. But the really good work that's being done these days, um. Isn't being done that way. The, the photojournalism that you really want to spend some time with. And it's hard to find sponsors for it, but there are people who are doing it. Certainly the New York times is doing it, you know, on their lens pages and it, right in the magazine, right? Right in the online version is phenomenal. Right. The Washington post is doing it. Uh, the Boston globe is doing it. I'm going to guess, and I bet the Miami Herald is doing it because they always had, a love of photography there. So there are newspapers now around the country who are working at that. Hell, Renee Byer at the Sacramento Bee. They're doing great stuff. She and her husband, Paul, are doing it for the Sacramento Bee. They have a wonderful online presence. So while there may not be a lot of magazines per se that are doing it, that are printed, right? There are other... Venues that are doing photojournalism and stories. And it's just a question of looking around to see who they are. You know, the the Pulitzer Center, you know, sent Larry Price on places all over the world to do his child labor. Because he had a great idea. And he knew how to propose it. Renee Byers' work on, you know, living on a dollar a day. Uh, she got that started through the UN. You just have to be kind of creative now and think about, you know, of course in Europe there are still a lot of magazines that are doing good work right. and, and <laughs> publishing and then even in Asia. But, you know, here, and I think even still in South America, but for some reason, uh, you know, the bean counters have won the the – fight time magazine is doing good stuff both you know in you know what's left of it and also online and they've done full issues of things of photographs they did a full issue of knockedway's work that was phenomenal but they're you know now they've been sold for 20 cents right and who knows who's got them
0: right and i guess that's that brings up a question for me that obviously Uh, must occur to you as well based on your life experience, which is what do you where do you advise photographers to look for the most opportunities now? Because I think, you know, some of the plight of magazines in this day and age calls into question that as a primary uh, vehicle or primary objective for young photographers. Where if you're you know seeing photographers who are just getting started Where are you seeing the opportunities most uh, attractive for them at that stage of their careers?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I'm going to tell you what I used to always tell young photographers all the way back 25 years ago,
0: 30 years ago.
1: Find a good newspaper that's not a giant paper, a medium-sized paper, and get a job there and perfect your skill. And that means that, you know, there's been a car crash. Get out there and photograph it. The building's on fire, right? Whatever. That teaches you how to work quickly and hone your eye. Very important. And then once you've got those skills, you can begin to market that and move it up. And at the same time, I'd be looking on... On the, you know, looking online, mm-hmm. who's doing interesting photo stories? Who's publishing good stuff? Who is taking the risk? Right? Right. Who's funding? I mean, that's why I brought up the Pulitzer right, Center. Right. I mean, you know, there was a wonderful photographer who I gave a lot of, uh, who gave a big project to for the Pinkerton Foundation uh, named Michael Santiago. And he was just graduating from the graduate program up in Syracuse. Right? Inside Newhouse. And, uh, you know, I was looking for a particular photographer. I asked Eli Reed. He told me about Michael. I went up there and I hired him for this project. And, I, you know, I said to him, you, you check me out with Heisler and other people. You'll find out I'm going to work you like a rented mule. But you'll learn a lot. And I did. And, I, you know, I came close to breaking him. But he was tough, <laughs> I say. Which I liked. And then, now, where? It, 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 you know, it was... The pressure to do it and the amount of stuff I had him do and the way I pushed him all the time. well you missed this. And, you know, I would go with him on a couple of the early assignments so he could, you know, I could watch how he worked. Now he's working. He's got a great newspaper job. He's got his degree. He's a brilliant young photographer. And he's got a, I'm going to conquer this spirit. You know, I'm going to make it. And that's really what it's about. You know, it's about commitment and a passion. And if you don't have a passion for what you do, you're not going to make it. And that doesn't, I don't mean that just in photography.
0: Right, right. I think that's essential, the secret sauce of life. That is the
1: secret sauce. And it's also the secret sauce to accept failure.
0: True, true.
1: And that, you know, I've had plenty of failure. Trust me, it hasn't all been roses and I've made some big mistakes in my life but I it, but I've learned from them and, and dick pollard in 72 gave me a piece of advice cuz I'd left life magazine and suddenly I wanted to come back and he wouldn't let me and he said you know the magazine's going to fold soon he already he was that prescient mm-hmm. and he said but most of all I want you to understand something there's no going back in life you only go forward so i have tried to live with that and it's one of the reasons i i moved around so much every 5 after about every 5 years
0: oh, karen karen
1: I'm so sorry. I hit that little button. Oh, no. Uh,
0: okay. Oh, no. Right.
1: By mistake. Okay. Where, did you, where did you lose me? Uh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. See, this, think- shows, this is an example <laughs> of why I am so terrible at technical things. That's
0: okay. It's all right. No,
1: I used to have photographers come to me and say, well, should I use a 28 or a blah, blah, blah? And I looked at them and I said, you know, if I knew the answer to that, I'd shoot it myself. <laughs> right? I don't need to. I don't care. All I care about is what you bring me. So I apologize for that. Time. That's okay.
0: That's all right. That's fine. Not a problem.
1: Not It's not uncommon. No,
0: it isn't. Um, that's what <laughs> makes uh, podcasting fun. Uh, oh, I'm so <laughs> okay. not
1: If you could see me, you'd see my face is red. <laughs> and I've now moved my hands completely away from the controls.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Excellent.
1: They're folded in my
0: lap. Um, so thinking about. You know, sort of what would you say are the primary attributes that a someone who's going to handle the reins as a director of photography or be a superb photo editor who is the kind of person like yourself who cultivates photographers and works with them to bring out the best in their talents? What kinds of attributes do you think they need and where should they, how should they be going about trying to cultivate those attributes?
1: Well, I th- that's a good question. <clears throat> I I have this theory uh, that really fine photographers, um, part of them always always stays like a child. They're childlike, and that's important. And so, you know, it, it you need to find out when you first of all you're going to look at people's work and see if it. It intrigues you. Don't let anybody just show you individual pictures, please. You want people to show you a series of pictures they've done on a subject. You want to see if they understand the concept of a photo story, of how to tell a story, even if you're going to only use a single picture. Because in trying to to shoot a story, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, they will find that gem moment. But if you're just going out to shoot one frame, the chances are, you know, it's going to be the spot news grab picture, and it's not going to be have a lot of soul necessarily. So that's one of the things. I think you need to spend some time with the photographers finding out uh, what they like besides photography. You know, what music do they like? What, you know, do they go to the theater? What, you know, do they have an artist that they're interested in? Do they, you know, do they like painting? Are they, you know, what what strikes them visually? What what alerts their creative senses? So they're more dimensional, right? I always tried to find out the backstory when I was start. I mean, I gave her his first work. Why and but I spent time with him finding out what his background was, where he came from, why he picked up a camera, what he hoped to do with that camera, what it was he wanted to see. So I knew him. I knew all the photographers that I assigned over the years I cultivated some a really close friendship, others I wanted to know what made them tick. And I wanted them to know what made me tick right so that that sharing of experiences and that sharing of what turns you on visually is extremely important if you're going to run a department and that whole concept of treating people the way you want to be treated now that doesn't mean i didn't lose my temper okay and that doesn't mean that i didn't have standoffs with photographers at times I mean I have a wonderful uh, piece of memorabilia here that uh, came from the Washington photographers the Washington DC photographers because one day I was on the phone with them at Newsweek and I was telling them what something I wanted them to do and it was a conference call you know I was on speakerphone and they all began to push back why do we have to do that I don't understand I don't like that idea blah 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 and I let them vent for a little bit. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you why uh, why you have to do this, okay? There's really – there's two reasons, and they're kind of tied for first place. Uh, one is the last time I looked, I was wearing the captain's hat. But I think actually the best answer is because I just told you to do it. I told you so. That's why. Right. That's it. And I believe that's the beginning and the end of the conversation. Less than a week later, and I still have it, I got a little plaque that they made up for me that's <laughs> wooden, and it's all framed up. And it's a mother duck with all the little ducklings behind her walking. And it says, Karen's Law, because I said so. <laughs> and I hung that on my door. And they all laughed, and then they all did what I told them, and then they all agreed with me that i they got it.
0: Right, right.
1: So norm, you know, how many times do you think I had to do that?
0: Probably just once.
1: That's it. Yeah. That's this. That's what I'm talking about. Pick your fights. Right,
0: right, right. Another, another thing that I've thought a lot about recently is how, and I want to get to another question in a minute, but on this one, how do you think? the digital world is changing the way that photography is perceived as a medium of storytelling and the aesthetics of it?
1: That's a complex question, really. I try to do cases. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Um, I think on some levels, it has made storytelling... uh, Available to a wider audience than just people who would pick up a magazine. Right? right? I mean, everybody who's online can see stuff. Of course, everybody who has an iPhone or a, you know, whatever the other brand is, an Android, they all think they're photographers.
0: Right. That's the paradox.
1: That's the paradox. Now, so to me, there are what we call civilians Mm -hmm. (laughs) who have access to making photographs more now because they don't have to buy uh, expensive equipment with you know lots of lenses and da 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 right and they they are all photographing uh, you know their families and all of that that's wonderful and I more power to them I think it's wonderful and they make albums and they share them I think all that's fabulous because in a way it, it, it improves their eye to see things and it makes them a little more curious okay on the other hand you have professional photographers who have a totally different reason for taking pictures and and so those two things, are oftentimes at war Mm -hmm. plus the other problem i have i have a couple of problems with digital particularly let's talk for professionals and one is that the damn camera is is geared for center focus right which makes me nuts makes me nuts probably because i started with film right right so i know that the world is not center focus
0: right 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 right
1: OK, so that's that makes me crazy. The fact that, that that young photographers are always looking at the back of their camera, which means they have taken their attention away from what they're shooting. Mm-hmm. And now they have to come back in and reconnect. OK, and that is a complete disaster.
0: Right. It's a barrier to the building of the trust. Yeah, relationship. Because
1: of, well, not only that, yeah. you're you've interrupted
0: right, the flow of things.
1: The flow of things. I have a theory about the third eye, which I have always taught, which is, you know, this eye sort of in the middle of your head. And I know this true for me. I used to do a lot of weaving and weave rugs. And I remember once working, this is back in the 60s, for God's sake, 70s. I remember working on a rug and and suddenly feeling like I was above looking down at the loom and my hands. And I remember saying to myself, don't get in the way. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: don't get in the way. They seem to know what they're doing. Back out of here. And so, you know, I I always use this analogy. You know, if you're galloping on a horse, the only time you don't fall off is when you and the horse are one.
0: Right, right.
1: I used to gallop horses, and I know when I fell. Mm -hmm. Why? (laughs) All Right? And the same thing is true when you're shooting. You need to get so locked into what you're doing that your inner eye takes over that special part of your creative self is now in charge right and it's going to lead you if you let it to the flow that's required to make wonderful pictures
0: good stuff karen good stuff so here's So uh, yeah, yeah, here's another qu- so here's my question coming on the other side of the equation which is do you think the public in the time that we're in now understands and can sense that difference between those images that are created purely sort of as documents of record without the kind of intense focus and effort that you've just described in those images that are made with that kind of skill and attention
1: well you know i think it's the pearls and rocks going back to dick pollard i i believe that the -the run-of-the-mill stuff that gets out there you know that's one thing but when those great things come out they are definitely the pearls and they do jump out and bite you and they do make people take their breath away and they do affect change Mm -hmm. whether it be the bodies washing up on the shore of the you know the babies who drown at sea in the Mediterranean whether it be the refugees in the camps whether it be the little girl crying after she's been separated from her mother Mm -hmm. and stuck in some awful place in Texas Mm -hmm. those pictures make people stop They may not want to, you know, I told you my, my little quote, which is to me, you know, what I said once about photographers, photojournalists, and that is they use a camera to show all of us what we don't like to see. The darkness that pervades much of the world. Their photographs shine a light into this darkness. That's a example, That's a quote from a little film I did about Rene Byers' work. Right, right. And that is true across the board. I mean, there are certain images that are ingrained in people's head. You know, during the Vietnam War, it was Eddie Adams' picture of the guy being assassinated. Right, right? right, And you have only two people of our generation put your finger to your head
0: mm-hmm.
1: like a gun, mm-hmm. and they all know the picture. Right, right. Now it ran on CBS cuz they were filming it the film crew for CBS was there right, I and they that. ran it yeah but that wasn't the picture people they don't remember that film right 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 I mean if you go through all sorts of seminal events it's the still image that people remember right
0: it's the trigger of memory
1: it is the trigger of memory and it and that is going to be true that's true today so it, is it easier you have to wade through a little more stuff that's for sure right right, right right but but the cream always rises
0: to the top, and it seems to me that the opportunity you know recently, I've really become a huge fan of public exhibit type spaces and the use of photography in those venues <laughs> as a means of kind of in a in a sense compensating for you know, as magazines suffer in some senses, um, these other venues emerge as opportunity spaces. And I just have come from an experience in New Mexico with an exhibit that ASMP chapter there mounts every year where they string images along a, a fence for a quarter of yeah. a mile on canvas. And it's a beautiful arrangement. It's just done in conjunction with the same folks who do, uh, David Shelley and his team that, that do, uh, Uh, photoville in new york but um, it's an incredibly powerful thing to watch people as they wander the length of that fence getting absorbed in the images that are being shown and just you know that's right stop and talk and point and ponder i think it's it's a wonderful thing to watch
1: it's like louisa Hoyes' work that was projected on the side of the u.n yeah Right. I mean, there's a million ways now to do things that you couldn't necessarily have done with film. I mean, I did a project with Rick ages ago, Rick Smolin, and we we actually um, uh, and it was about diabetes. It was first. But we made a deal and we used the fence around the public library Mm -hmm. for the first time to hang big prints uh, that were backlit. And that was the first time they ever used that fence area. It wasn't easy to get, but when we got it, people loved it. It was up there for a month and people, so there are now all sorts of places. I mean, I, you know, an exhibit like that about diabetes would be great to put in the mall of America. Right. Right. So it, you you know, you, it's, you're only as limited in finding a place to do stuff like that as your imagination
0: That's great. We've had a great conversation today, Karen, and I really appreciate the time that you've given to me to have this have this conversation. I think it's incredibly meaningful and I suspect that the people listening will probably want to bring have me bring you back at some point. But what kind of you know, if you think about the arc of your own career and and the life experiences that you've had. What kind of advice would you want to impart to young people who are particularly women who are seeking to enter the profession now?
1: Well, first, I'm going to tell you that much of the you don't have to worry about breaking glass ceilings because, you know, that that's been done for you. Mm -hmm. And not just, you know, on my side, but all these great women photographers who have, you know, opened that door. And so what I would tell you, once again, is a couple of things. One, um, anybody who looks at your photographs, just remember it's a subjective business. And, you know, it's like an actor going out for a part. Everybody's going to turn you down until somebody gives it to you. Right. So there's going to be a lot more rejection than maybe you're used to having. So what is required is a a backbone and a commitment that's very deep that you really are committed no matter what obstacles get in your way to making your dream come true. And that is probably the best life advice I could give everybody is that you will always have hit blockades Mm -hmm. and, and you're, What you have to be is willing to fight through it and not try to imitate somebody else's work, right? Don't try to be the new Annie Leibovitz or the new this or the new that. You have to be your own person with your own vision. What do you see out there in the world that you want to see, photograph, experience, communicate? And that's what you should do. And if you're starting out, I would tell you to shoot things that you think you know really well because, in fact, you don't. Right.
0: That's good advice.
1: Cartier-Bresson said that the hardest thing for him to do is shoot where he was shooting in France because he knew it. It's not exotic. So it's very, you know, I often send photographers, young photographers to just photograph their neighborhood because they think they know it. And if you if you force yourself to do things like that, you'll find you'll it'll open your eyes, you'll see better. And so that's all I would say is don't give up the ship every time you get turned down. Just make it you know, get more resolved, perfect your skills. Ask why. Mm-hmm. Why don't why didn't what do you think is lacking in my work?
0: Yes, I, it, it strikes me that we're really talking about the creative process very much as we've both experienced it. And I've always used the analogy when people ask me what I thought about the work that I was doing. I said, my, you know, the two analogies that I had for a photo editor in my position was one analogy as being the coach who's trying to extract mm-hmm. great performance from an athlete. And the other was a director trying to extract a great performance from an actor. And I think both of those things are, are true for, for people in art doing that sort, you know, that side of the equation.
1: Yes. And even it's true. That's why if you're the photographer and things, you know, and, and you're getting rejected for something, you want to ask, tell me what it is I should do better. What, what is missing? What do you think is missing?
0: You want to know that. Absolutely. You know, I know that criticism is personal, but the best way to learn is to recognize that it isn't personal. You know, when it's it's delivered by well-meaning people who have your, you know, have your development at heart, then, you know, they're worth paying attention to and finding.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Even if they're not well-meaning. That's true. The reality is listen. That's true. That's true. Right? It's always important to listen absolutely and um and then weigh what they say yep.
0: no, that's true
1: so that you know that i i'm a, i've been doing some coaching and i may be doing some more with a particular, with a graduate school of journalism it seems to be in works here that it may happen and i always my first line whenever anybody comes in i always say you know you need to have thick skin or is your skin thick because I, I, I'm going to give it to you straight. So, you know, and don't, and don't try to tell me about what you were trying to do.
0: Right. <laughs> right?
1: I don't want to hear there that. Do and
0: not do. <laughs> That's
1: right. You know, uh, Bill, the great Bill Pierce had a line during when we'd shot film, he goes, adults don't whine. They just turn in the film.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Well, that's the thing. Don't ever start a conversation when you're showing your work. I was, I wanted to get.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: <laughs> right. Don't go yeah. there.
0: Well, listen, Don't Karen, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you, the time today. It's, you know, it's been really fun to talk with you and I look forward to continuing the conversation in the future.
1: Thank you so much. I had a fabulous time. It's always great to talk to you, Tom.
0: Likewise.
1: It's been been fun for years.
0: Yes, it has.
1: Thank you, Karen. Appreciate
0: it. Thank you, Tom. Bye. (music) Bye.